Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Fred Luskin, Pauline Tesler, and Michael Lerner as they discuss forgiveness and healing and conflict resolution. Fred Luskin and Pauline Tesler, welcome to the new school at Commonweal. Thank you. Um, let me just introduce you both briefly. Uh, first of all, to acknowledge that Pauline suggested that we do this, and I'm deeply grateful to you. Uh, starting with Pauline, Pauline uh, directs the Integrative Law Institute at Commonweal, and she is a certified family law specialist. She has a practice that offers collaborative law and interdisciplinary collaborative team representation in divorce and other family matters, uh, and much more. But a simple way of thinking about Pauline is that she literally wrote the book on collaborative divorce. Mm. And this is what she teaches all over the world. And <laughs> given that half American marriages end in divorce, and that the system is designed to make this a litigious uh, process, which further makes it difficult for parents to parent, uh, and just drives hostility forward, and I just think, and we've thought for many years at Commonweal, that Pauline's work on this is just incredibly important. And, you know, the day, I hope, will come when Pauline's work represents um, the kind of um, norm of how divorces are settled. Uh, and so we're honored that you're part of Commonweal and honored that you suggested bringing Fred here. Uh, Fred... Laskin is director of the Stanford University Forgiveness Project, associate professor at the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology, um, and serves as co-chair of the Garden of Forgiveness Project at Ground Zero in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. He's also a senior consultant in health promotion at Stanford, where he teaches people to manage stress and live lives of greater uh, satisfaction. Um, and so, in a sense, our principal topic today derives from Fred's work, though it's going to be a three-way conversation, on forgiveness and healing and conflict resolution. So, we've agreed that Fred will start by talking about his work for 10 to 15 minutes, and after that, um, uh, Pauline and I will enter into the conversation and at a certain point, uh, probably about an hour and a half in, we will open it for conversation with everybody. So Fred, with that, Thank you. we'd love to hear from you. Well, hi, everybody. Hi. Um, it's a beautiful spot to be here. Um, I, I asked for, uh, they asked me if I wanted a few minutes at the beginning to talk, and I thought I would take that for two reasons. One is to just explain a little bit how I got into forgiveness and um, you know, make, make a, a personal touch around that. And secondly, just to, to share a few of the most basic things that I have learned from trying to teach this stuff to people in really crappy situations all over the world. Um, for me, this started both as a personal wounding and as a kind of, as you'll see a little further on, kismet, 
and good fortune. But the personal wounding was my best friend and business partner at the time um, met a woman who took an immediate and total dislike to myself and my wife. Um, and that takes some work. I mean, we're not that likable, but a total dislike, <laughs> let me tell you, that, you know, you have to, you have to be, the pump has to be well-primed to go there. Um, <laughs> what can I say? Um, but... The, the, the situation was that I had, I had been very close friends with this person and he had been to my house, like multi, you know, we were just like interchangeable friends and homes and stuff like that. And he started dating a woman who the first time that he brought her for dinner was the last time I saw him for a number of years. Whoa. I know it was a bad dinner. No, I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> and, and let me tell you, to be a forgiveness teacher, you have to have a sense of humor. You have to, because people come in with such heavy stuff. So, like, the, there's a Rodney Dangerfield joke that, that, I, that I think of around that, you know, that, that they came for dinner and they, nobody returned is... He has this joke is, my wife is a terrible cook. At my house, they take Blue Cross instead of diner's card. You know? <laughs> um, but she came and literally when she saw us, like we opened the door and she took a look at the two of us, probably more me because I was in front. She hid behind my friend hid behind him for the entire dinner, most, not the entire dinner, and when they left, they didn't hear from him again. And I was, I was devastated. Um, this had been the best man at my wedding, and we were absolutely the closest of friends, and my map of the world did not include a betrayal like that. It, it, there were a lot of things that included, I mean, and I accepted that I could be an, an you know, asshole, whatever it is, but I didn't expect that ever, that degree of, like, cutoff. So I t called him, this was a while ago, so I doubt there was texting, there might have been email, but whatever, no response, none. And... Um, I didn't know how to cope. And so I cope the way most people cope, by becoming angry and miserable. I did both of those really well. Didn't do me any good, but I did them really well, and I had no other skills except my own pain. And that went on for a while. Then I think I wrote him a letter, and he wrote me back like a cold, detached thing, and so I got his letter, and that affirmed my sense that there was something deeply wrong with him, and so I reinitiated, you know, anyway. That went on for quite a while, and I was, um, in some level, I felt like thrown over a boat without a life jacket mm -hmm. because he was my closest friend. Mm -hmm. And I literally had a map of 
you know, my wife, my parents, uh, this guy, maybe a couple other people I could depend upon. And it, it, it just blew out my circuits to recognize that this was not true. And so I suffered and suffered and suffered and suffered and suffered. And unfortunately, my suffering was not confined to me. So I left, I made my wife's life less positive. So a few years into this experience, um, my wife comes to me and says something along the lines of, you know, Fred, I still love you, but I like you less. And we, ha we hadn't been married long enough for me to ignore her. You know? <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like after four years of marriage, it's like, oh, okay, anything you say is important. <laughs> 20-something years, of, you know, it's like it doesn't register in the same way. So this really registered. And, um, it, it galvanized me to take stock and to really think about, um, is there any way out of this mess? And there wasn't with the tools that I had. And, but because I so respected her, and because she wasn't a complainer, like this wasn't somebody who was constantly pulling at me, telling me I had to change in a hundred ways. This was a, a, a very painful and eye-opening experience for her to say something like that. And so I started to explore like a last ditch, like last stop on the road idea about forgiveness because like who wants that? It was totally his bad. And the truth is it was totally his bad. And that had nothing to do with whether I could forgive him. But I didn't, I didn't know any of this. So I started to investigate forgiveness and I started to examine places in me that I could adapt to this situation. And I came up with a couple. First being, and again, so simple, and you know, when I look back on it now, I can't believe something that simple would have the impact that my work had, but it was that simple. I had two primary insights. One is, Fred, I mean, please, I'm apologizing in advance for how dull this is. One is, he's not responsible for your happiness. That was a shock to me. And two, he doesn't owe you anything. He's a free agent. If he wants to go off and to Bali and or whatever, that's his choice. He doesn't owe you friendship. And and those two simple insights, like, catalyze something in me that let me pull on some of the experience that I had. I was at that point almost a licensed marriage and family therapist, which was quite embarrassing. <laughs> because I started to recognize basically that those who can't teach, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> those who can't do therapy, um, I let it go. And um, reconnected with him and met him 
we became best of friends again because forgiveness works. But at the end of this experience, I started thinking through what did you actually do? Like what steps did you actually take to release your contempt and pity and blame? And I started thinking about them. And it was at that point that I was, I had to do a dissertation to get my PhD from Stanford. So I figured, okay, well, I'll try this. You know, like nobody's, there was no research on forgiveness. There were two studies in the entire field of psychology and psychiatry on, fee, on forgiveness. So I figured, okay, I'll try one. So I tried to systematize what I had done. I did. I collected Stanford students who had a grudge and we randomized them and this thing that I didn't even know what it was worked. And I got a grant to expand it into a bigger study. And, you know, that launched forgiveness. But here's the other piece as to why I'm sitting in front of you, which is very humorous. Um, I went to the Stanford report to see if they would help us recruit subjects for the big forgiveness project we got funded. You have to understand, almost 20 years ago, there was no social discourse on forgiveness. This was 1997 or eight. Nobody's talking about this. You know, meditation wasn't as, as popular. Um, any of the qualities that touched on the spiritual work, you know, not as, certainly from the academic perspective, when not as, and here we were, we were trying to do a randomized trial on a forgiveness methodology for people who were hurt, and we didn't know that anybody would show up. So we asked the Stanford report to run a, like, story on this nascent forgiveness project, which they did. And they were wonderful. They put a, th a page three big story, forgiveness study looking for volunteers because it was so novel. So that, that get, gets published. I'm on the Stanford golf course playing around. I'm still a postdoc at the time. You could play the Stanford golf course as a postdoc for $19. So I went out every week because, you know, it's like 100 bucks if you don't have that. I check my messages. I'm a postdoc. I had never gotten a message <laughs> in the, no, I mean, I'm calling back at the medical school where I'm a postdoc. There's like 20 messages from media outlets all over the United States asking me that I have to call them back. They want to know about forgiveness. I called one of them back. What I found out was the very second that Stanford had faxed out this study thing, Stanford study looking for volunteers, it was so unique, they faxed it out as one of the one or two things that was interesting at Stanford that week. It arrived on media desks simultaneous to the fact that Bill Clinton's semen on Monica Lewinsky's draft had been positively DNA identified as his, and the New York Times called to ask if Hillary should forgive Bill. 
I couldn't make this up if I wanted to. So all of a sudden, I'm going from a nobody who knew nothing about forgiveness except one half-hearted attempt in my own life and one tiny little dissertation study to an expert that the world media is calling to find out if Hillary should forgive Bill. I didn't even know who they were talking about when they called Hillary who? <laughs> the news media is such though, and I was anxious enough. This was, this was again almost 20 years ago when a good academic was not supposed to talk to the media about such frivolous things as Hillary forgiving Bill. Um, so I told them that. I said, you know, I really can't comment on that. So being the news media, what they would ask then, well, how do you think this will affect Chelsea? She goes to Stanford. Um, but this is where I'll stop because I'll also fill in just a few things that I've learned. Channel 4 in San Francisco at the time was the NBC affiliate. I talked to them to, you know, I can't really comment on Hillary and Bill. I know nothing about their relationship. Um, you know, privately, I thought this was right in line with their relationship, but that was just privately. Um, I said, but, you know, we, we're doing real work on forgiveness. And we want to show the world, because this was nobody wished knowing this, that you can teach forgiveness. That was the crucial message that we were trying to get of course, that you could take this topic that was consigned to religious things, was thought of as esoteric or spiritual, and through simple education, you could help people make massive changes in how much pain they suffered. So we got Channel 4 to come down and do an interview about forgiveness as therapy and education. And that literally changed the direction of my life. Mm -hmm. that, that one interview went on TV. Most of the other San Francisco stations put it on TV. The Chronicle did a story on our forgiveness work. And I became somebody who would sit here in front of you. What we tried to demonstrate in this research that started 20 years ago before we took it into really complex situations was one, forgiveness is a teachable skill. That is the most important outgrowth of our research. That it doesn't depend on like just spiritual insight and evolution, it's teachable skill, two. That teachable skill has demonstrable effects on your physiology and its reactivity and on your mental state that we had shown from our first research. The second research project made that abundantly clear. Third, forgiveness was a secular as well as a religious injunction that it wasn't owned by the religious people, that this is a human innate quality that is available to anybody who wants it. And, and lastly, that it was a, like almost a necessary 
part of what, what I believe then and I still believe of human resilience. That human beings live in a world where you are guaranteed to be hurt. If you don't cultivate mechanisms for dealing with that hurt without resentment and prejudice, then it is almost impossible to live the successful life that you want. Because what human beings tend to do is the hurt layers. You know, this person was bad to me, that person was bad to me. Our protective mechanisms come in and then they, they spread uh, resistance and armoring and all those other ways that we protect ourselves from being hurt again. But those mechanisms are not that intelligent or precise. So even though mom may have hurt us, we start generalizing out. Even though mom may have hurt us because she was in pain, we leave out the pain part. And without this capacity of some mechanism, which is just called forgiveness, it could be anything, but it's just a human quality of making peace with your actual life. Without that quality, we're pretty much doomed. Because then if we don't have that, we never have a clean slate again. You know, we never, we never come back out into the world with some original mind. You know, like some, some hopefulness that it's again, not just safe, but that we have maneuvered our way through it. And the last piece, again, and I'll shut up, is... When you learn to forgive, and this is why I still talk about it, it's, it appears to me to be one of the basic but difficult coping qualities that human beings require. Because when you forgive something and follow that process through, it develops in any of us who do that efficacy. You know, I can be hurt. I can be abandoned, I can be lied to, and I can survive. I'm, I, I, it develops efficacy inside that whatever life throws at me is not going to be disabling to me. That efficacy is part of the power of it, and without that efficacy, we see what we see with so many scared and overly defended people because they haven't healed themselves from their wounds, so they can't trust because this is the key takeaway. And, and, and I, you know, this really is one of the key takeaways that we have learned after all these years, is it's not that we don't trust other people when we move forward badly, is that we don't trust ourselves to handle our own life. And since other people can be a threat or situations can be a threat, and we don't have that efficacy, we go through life frightened and mistrusting. But forgiveness builds up our efficacy so we don't have to be so afraid of our partner our friends, our neighbors. It, it, it's for developing, again, that's why I refer to it as a resilience skill. 
it develops that in us. Okay. I hope I didn't go too long. Not too bad. No, you did good. I'm good. Uh, a quick thing before we go on, just well, a time just out. Just wind for, me up. You know what I'm saying? Time, time out for Ken. Uh, please be careful that you've got the mic there, so when you tap it or hit it with your hands, oh, okay. it's gonna. I'm talking with yeah, my I know, hands. Yeah, I know. Talk with your hands, but just keep them a little further from the mic. Um, no, that was really good. I let you run a little long because it was really good. So, um, first of all, let me just say I'm going to come back to this, but. I mentioned to you and Paulina over lunch before we started that while I was researching your work before doing this, uh, early this morning, I came across nine steps that you've articulated about how to forgive. And, you know, I've worked with forgiveness myself. You know, there are three people in my life that I can think of that have been really hard for me to forgive. And I've worked with forgiveness myself and in the Cancer Help Program for 31 years. You know, worked with hundreds and hundreds of people for whom forgiveness was an issue. But I have to say, when I looked at the, this list of nine, it was the most concise, useful operating manual for forgiveness that I've seen. And so I just sent it to, you know, 20 friends this morning saying, check this out. So we'll get to that. But before we do that, um, I'd like to turn to Pauline. Pauline, Again, over lunch, uh, we were taking the example of, um, you know, issues in marriage that involve deep forgiveness. And you said something that I thought was extraordinary. Let me see if I've got it right. You said that a quarter of the people who divorce have, quote, good enough marriages. They don't have to divorce. Often they can't remember why they divorced, ultimately. We were talking about that. Even at the time, they can't Even articulate the time, why they're divorcing. Right, you know. But when you look at the impact on children, there's a huge negative impact on the children who went through these marriages that were good enough marriages that ended in divorce. And therefore, inevitably, impact the parents as well. You That's know. correct. So I just thought that was a real, I mean, given that half of marriages end in divorce, right, roughly, and uh, most of those are driven toward inamicable solutions by the system, but that a quarter of that half or an eighth of the population really didn't have to divorce. They don't have to yeah. divorce. And the, the study that I was reading, it was a meta-analysis yeah. of a lot of research about what happens to children after divorces. Right. And I'm a family law specialist, but I discovered things I just hadn't really thought about or been aware of. Please. About 25% of marriages, people don't really have strong reasons for needing to divorce. Mm -hmm. If they don't have children, then fine, whatever their personal reasons are. So be it. But there's no question that the children fare very badly. And in fact, according to this study, this meta-analysis, it's only the children of the worst marriages, Mm -hmm. the ones in which the suffering for everybody is acute within Mm -hmm. the family system, where where the children don't do worse after a divorce. Mm -hmm. In every other situation, they do Badly enough that it's statistically significant for all of those children. So in the marriages that are good enough, the question that this researcher was interested in, and this is the nexus with Fred's work, is she, she referred to studies in which as soon as there are children, 
in a marriage, people become unhappier. I don't, this was, the, these were fairly recent, but even so, what she was talking about was women being angry because they're doing most of the housework, plus they're out in the workforce, mm-hmm. and they're not getting the support that they need, and men being angry because the spouse that was completely available and supportive emotionally now is paying more attention to the children than to the spouse, and that there's a kind of a day-to-day toll of wounds and offenses and anger and resentment. And she was interested in forgiveness. She thought that as a matter of public policy, people shouldn't be forced to stay married. They shouldn't be shamed for divorcing if they're gonna divorce. But why aren't we making free resources available to teach forgiveness skills when we know that they work and when they don't have to be thought of as the resource simply when horrible things happen? But when the day-to-day stuff happens, because these marriages are good enough. Let me just check with you, because I may have misspoken. Just now I heard you say that a quarter of marriages are good enough. Um, Of of, of people who are intending to divorce. Those marriages are good enough. A a quarter of those marriages, therefore an eighth of the population, roughly. roughly. I guess, yeah. Um, Yeah, I agree, uh, the public policy thing. You know, it seems to me that um, forgiveness belongs in a category like our colleague Rachel Naomi Remen, who um, is the medical director of the Cancer Health Program and ran a program here for 25 years uh, for helping doctors heal. And um, uh, Rachel um, often said about grieving that she thought grieving should be taught in public schools, you know? Yeah. And so it seems to me there are a category of deep skills, of which, you know, forgiveness is one, grieving is one. I would say gratitude is a third, you know? And what's interesting about thinking about this kind of of thing is that, and uh, Fred, you were saying this, it's different from saying, oh, let's, let's all meditate, you know? In other words, no question, contemplative practice has all kinds of benefits. But there's a difference from between simply teaching a contemplative practice and teaching a skill. You are listening to a TNS Conversation with Fred Luskin, Pauline Tesler, and Michael Lerner. So I'd like to, just so we hear a different voice here for a minute, and so I can hear them, I'm going to run through these nine. And I, I strongly encourage you all to look up Fred's work and find these nine practices and email them to all your friends. One, know exactly how you feel about what happened and be able to articulate what about the situation is not okay. Then tell a trusted couple of people about your experience. That's, that's pretty basic for this kind of stuff. You know, what wasn't okay, figure it out, tell a couple of people. Then two, make a commitment to yourself to do whatever you have to do to feel better. Forgiveness is for you and not for anyone else. Three, forgiveness does not necessarily mean reconciliation with the person that hurt you or condoning their action. What you are after is to find peace. Forgiveness can be defined as the, quote, peace and understanding that comes from blaming that which has hurt you less. 
taking the life experience less personally and changing your grievance story. So it doesn't necessarily mean you have to give it up entirely. It's like, how can you gradually forgive? And with the three people that I've worked on forgiveness with, it's been an ongoing experience for many, many years. It's yeah. how, can the, how can I do this less? How can I take it less personally? How can I change my grievance story? Can I, can I say yeah. one thing yeah. that what we found was a fulcrum point in this is through instruction is to remind people that it is a process, right. that it won't happen immediately by any stretch of imagination, but here's the, what you can teach. That, let's say you, you, know, you have a, most of the people who came to us were dealing with couple issues by far. I mean, bad exes and bad current spouses and bad future spouses. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, you know, but it was by far in 20 years. But what we would say to them was, okay, you know, for two days you haven't hated your ex. The ex calls. They say something that triggers your response. And then you go in your mind, they did it again. It's still their fault. And what we suggested was, and this is, always what relapse prevention programs do is we told them, you know, you're going to have to expect relapse. But it's how you frame that, which is how it becomes an ongoing thing, rather than they did it again, they're still terrible. Oh, there's still parts of me that need practice or, you know, but it's whether you're looking backward or forward that can be brought to people's conscious attention. Okay. Right. So then fourth, getting the right perspective on what is happening. Recognize that your primary distress is coming from hurt feelings, thoughts, and physical upset. You are suffering now, not what offended you or hurt you two minutes or ten years ago. Forgiveness helps to heal those hurt feelings. Then fifth, at the moment you feel upset, practice some kind of stress management technique. Six, give up expecting things from people or your life that they do not choose to give you. Recognize the unenforceable rules you have for your health or how you or other people must behave. Remind yourself that you can hope for health, love, peace, and prosperity and work hard to get them. Seven, put your energy into looking for another way to get your positive goals met than through the experience that hurts you. Instead of mentally replaying your hurt, seek out new ways to get what you want. Eight, remember that a life well lived is your best revenge. Instead of focusing on your wounded feelings and thereby giving the person who caused you pain power over you, learn to look for the love, beauty, and kindness around you. Forgiveness is about personal power. And finally, nine, amend your grievance story to remind you of the heroic choice to forgive. So Pauline, in your uh, divorce work, how do you personally work with the forgiveness issue with people? It's a delicate question. Um, one thing that I've learned in the years since I've become aware of Fred's work 
and become more aware as a reformed litigator of, of the powerful emotional depths that are the real divorce story. And what the lawyers do is just the tiniest tip of the iceberg. Um, I've learned to be pretty humble about what a lawyer can hope to do during the interaction time that I have with a client. Um, the biggest thing that I've learned is that it takes more more resources than I or even the best trained family lawyers can bring to the situation if people are going to be invited to rise to their highest capacities during a divorce. And that maybe is the biggest lesson I've learned in all of my years doing this, is that what people expect from their lawyers, we're kind of the designated profession in the culture. Uh, we aren't given any tools or understandings about how to do the job, but we're the designated profession to help people through divorce. And what people look to us for is both explicit and implicit instructions about how you're supposed to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, many of them have never been through this, and they have stories on television and from their friends. And they look to me, for example, to tell them, how do I rise to the occasion? What am I supposed to do here? And Everything that I both say and respond to with them gives them those instructions. And what I've learned to do is to bring every resource available to me to the task of not being a moral potted plant, mm -hmm. not just if my client's angry, I get angrier and put up the megaphone, but rather holding a moral stance, really. And this is not something that's very popular at the ABA yet, the American Bar Association, but that that you can rise to the occasion, that your, that your family, your children, your community need for you to handle this normal life transition in a way that doesn't create more pain for your children and yourself and your workplace and the people who depend on you and the people you love. And from that has grown the collaborative movement where we bring in a team of mental health professionals and financial people, some of them are here today, um, who can bring many more professional resources to bear to help people have the conversations that they need to have um, to move forward capable of parenting children. And we, my community, the Collaborative Community Internationally, has been turning to you and your work as one really important tool to start building into that picture. You know, and, and one thing that's interesting is when you were talking before about um, when parents have their first kid, it's been known in the psychology world that almost university, universally, the couple's satisfaction with each other goes down. Like that's a, that's a pretty long-term robust finding that you like your partner less, you get less from your partner, you give less to your partner, and there's, there's this abrasiveness that wasn't there. But the other side is, and again, there's, the lack of education about this is kind of striking, is when people do this successfully, even though their, their, their personal like juice from the relationship gets diminished, they report a higher sense of purpose. Hmm. The ones who do it successfully say, wow, I now have a family, so it's not so much about me, or I have to help my kid, or we're in this together, or, or they touch some part of sacredness from cooperating to raise a life. 
but that's that's the balance. And one of the things that I wonder is in our unbelievably self-absorbed way that we now have oriented everything, that larger purpose and that greater good kind of speak is harder for people to articulate. Mm -hmm. But that used to be the trade-off, you know, that we, we would go through some sleepless nights and figuring out our roles again because we knew that we were doing something good. And that, you know, for when I was doing my training, even up until 20 years ago, that was, that was the balancing point, which is just interesting. Yeah. Yeah, but these things, you know, you, you mentioned that there was nothing in the psychology literature on forgiveness. And I was reminded uh, there's also almost nothing in the psychology literature on wisdom. I know. And, um, and, um, and yet wisdom, forgiveness gratefulness, a whole series of things, guess where they have been in the literature for 5,000 years? Yep. It's in the religious traditions. Yep. Yeah. So our experiment is in trying to live in a secular society uh, without um, what was for millennial an overwhelmingly powerful right. belief system uh, that reinforced now, I'm not saying did it right. I mean, there are endless examples of horrific cruelty in religion. Yeah. But at least it was in the literature. You know? yeah. At least these things were held as profound values. Well, I, it, I think that that really supported the notion of there being a higher purpose to, right. to, to families. Right. But, and in addition, though, um, the, the kind of post-industrial collapse of any social support simply for living in families right. seems to me to be the more immediate problem in front of us, which is that even people who aren't um, ex especially religious or don't see themselves that way, when they live still in cultures where there still are large extended families living in really close proximity, often in the same house or in the same compound, and when you live in a society that's what the sociologists called high context rather than low context societies, where your, your web of connections with others is how you define your identity, um, that, that immediate an obvious value of paying attention to the relationships and connections with others is there whether or not you see the spirituality that helps support yeah, it. I agree with that. Let me respond to one thing that Michael said because I never articulated it that way, but it, it strikes me as very useful, is that we're trying to figure out how to live life without the tools that were handed down from antiquity. Like, yeah. you know, yeah. people use these for thousands of years to handle life, right. and now we're trying to cope without it. Right. Um, one, one of the, the things that is like most interesting to me about even, even couples forgiveness is, I wrote a book on couples forgiveness called Forgive for Love. Mm -hmm. When I was doing the research on that book, I saw that none of the books that were about people getting along better with each other even mentioned the word forgiveness. Mm -hmm. They were all about, well, you have to learn what you want and you have to learn to express yourself and here's how you communicate assertively and here's how you become mindful of what you want. And they were all about self. Yeah. 
But in the studies that looked at what makes successful long-term partnership, forgiveness was in either the top five or top ten of every study, but just ignored. And it's, it's, so it's again, it's like in a culture that doesn't want to use the tools that have been around forever, have been proven, maybe not empirically, to have value, here we are like trying to go out and solve problems without the mechanisms. That brings me to something we talked about before, um, before we started this conversation, which is um, forgiveness as a, as a self-help right. and, and, and as a way of dealing with one's own pain and living life well, um, starting now. And forgiveness... As, a, as part of a restorative process mm -hmm. that involves relationship with perhaps the person who's given offense and perhaps something that one does to strengthen mm -hmm. your family and community. Um, something that isn't part of the model that you've taught. But I'm really interested in this notion of, of the suffering that comes from seeing ourselves as isolated individuals. Um, without connection to wisdom traditions or to our, our partners or to family and community, and wondering what, for example, empathy, apology, reconciliation, and restorative processes generally, what you think about them given that they're not part of the model that you're most concerned with. Well, let me say something to that before Fred responds. Um, you know... We've been doing Commonweal for over 40 years, and um, one of our, our principal interpersonal commitment here is kindness. Okay. We really focus on being kind to each other. The three things that we ask staff and volunteers to be is to be kind or at least civil to each other. <laughs> kind or at least civil. The second thing is um, to be uh, good at what you do, to be skillful at what you do. And the third is to be fiercely dedicated to the work. Those are the three What's things. What's the third? Fiercely dedicated yes. to the work. So kindness is the yoga of the heart. Uh, skillfulness is the yoga of the head. And uh, dedication is the work of the hands. And in the Bhagavad Gita, bhakti yoga, jnana uh, yoga, and karma yoga are the three yogas that vie for supremacy, and the Gita tells us that the yoga of the heart is primary. And uh, that, you know, it says of jnana yoga, it's a difficult path. The wisdom path is a difficult path. And then, you know, karma yoga, it, by their fruit shall you know them, you know. So I was thinking about the apology thing because a couple of things for me, just the way I work, I can, when I get into a difficulty with somebody, when somebody says you've done something wrong, I can almost always see their point of view on it. In other words, I just have an absolute radical lack of an assumption that I'm right. Mm -hmm. And so it makes it easy for me in an authentic way to apologize, to say, look, I'm sorry about that. Right. And, but the other thing about apology is it has enormous power. So it's not only generates kindness, but it has this enormous power that when people know about me or anybody else, 
that you can pretty much be counted on not to take your own point of view too seriously and to recognize somebody else's point of view. And then if you really feel you made a mistake of some kind, or even I often apologize when it's a marginal call, yeah. just because strategically it's so smart to apologize. You know? Right. So, um, I totally get that. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so anyway, this connects, as Pauline was just suggesting, it's a set of tools or inferences that connect with forgiveness. You know, in, in the forgiveness, the, the, the science of forgiveness, there are only a handful of things that like really predict forgiveness. And you know, one of the things that predicts non-forgiveness is narcissism, yeah. as, as anybody could imagine. Right. The more entitled, the less you have empathy, and the more the world revolves around you, the harder it is to imagine that you know you would ever apologize or, or do anything. So narcissism predicts lack of forgiveness. One of the things that predicts forgiveness is the capacity to be grateful. And, and there, is a, there is a strong link, there's not that much research, but there's a strong link between gratitude and forgiveness. Because again, this is so simple, but people who are more grateful, they're more likely to see life in balance. You know, so, okay, this person was really nice to me. I, I live in a beautiful spot. I have food. Okay, so that person wasn't. They, they, the more grateful you are, the more natural it is to see a, a relationship and be able to hold things. But the biggest um, predictive power was a sincere apology from the offender. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And... It's good news, bad news in that because as much as we're talking about forgiveness, we also live in a culture which is close to retarded about apology. That like people think an apology is, I'm sorry you feel bad. (laughs) That's, That's the common apology. I'm sorry you're upset. Uh, It seems like this is still bothering you. I'm sorry. The apology that has psychological healing and facilitates forgiveness is one where the first step is, I'm sorry for what I did. I recognize clearly that you are upset and I make the link between my behavior and you're upset. It's not that I'm apologizing that you're upset. I'm apologizing because I did something that caused that upset, and I recognize and feel bad about it, and then I will do something to either make amends or make sure this doesn't happen again. That's considered a sincere apology, and that has a phenomenal impact on whether or not people forgive. And so relating that to what Pauline is saying makes sense that it's a community thing, not just an individual thing. But when the community responds to your pain, you're more likely to let it go. But I think um, there's a third point. There's There's the, I'm sorry you're upset. 
there's the I'm sorry for what I did and I will try not to do it again or make amends, whatever. But there's a third point, which is I'm sorry that what I did hurt you, but I'm not necessarily taking back what I did. In other words, um, no, I think this is important. This is important. I mean, we can laugh at it, but it's important. Um, because no, that's a necessary kind of justice. Yeah, in other words, if I, if I, as I say, I apologize quite easily, but I don't want to do moral injury to myself by being a doormat for somebody when what I did was the best thing I could figure out how to do at the time, and it was done in integrity. And, um, and in fact, often, doing, not all the time, but I will make decisions and do things that hurt people, not because I want to hurt them, but because it's intrinsic in the situation that, you know, somebody is going to get hurt. And I can be very sorry that what I did hurt someone, and yet if I had it to do over again, mm -hmm. I might do the same thing. So that's different from an ego, I'm right situation. It is the situation required, there was no more money for this project, whatever, we had to bring the project to an end, you know, your livelihood in part depended on it, you felt deeply hurt by it. I am truly sorry, and I own that that I made this decision. But that doesn't mean that, uh, that I would do it differently. So it just seems to me it's a third point in this, as opposed to I did something that hurt you, and if I were to do it again, I would do it a different way so that it didn't but hurt you. But you know, one response to what you're yeah. saying is that it may be, some of those may be situations where an apology is not necessary. That say, if you're a boss and you fire somebody, yeah. it's implicit in the relationship that that's part of your responsibility. Mm -hmm. So yes, you can, be, you can apologize that they're in pain, mm -hmm. but it's not that you did anything wrong. Mm -hmm. Usually in an interpersonal offense, somebody feels that you transgressed some either rule or law or moral behavior, and that that is what you're apologizing for, for your transgression or your inability to control yourself or something. But I, I think that's different than a more neutral situation where you're fulfilling some kind of responsibility or some role that's given to you. Whoa. Or even, um, you know, you have to decide one way or another. I'm yeah, I would see that more as, as empathy, as the capacity to express empathy for the, for the right. unavoidable pain, as opposed to that, that sense in oneself that one transgressed, which in, in the domain of restorative processes right. in my world of practice um, is something that is, when it's done right, when it's done well, is a gift not only to the person who's been harmed, but also to the person who caused offense, because... Uh, our natural human tendency, our, our first reaction is, um, I didn't do it, and if I did, did it, do it, it didn't hurt you so much, and you should just deal with it and suck it up. But, the, but coming with that kind of attitude, if you do know that you transgressed, is a feeling of shame and guilt. Mm -hmm. And the ability to make a heartfelt, empathic apology 
Um, and to have a restorative dialogue following upon it is a gift to both the perpetrator and, and the injured party in that sense. The guilt and, and, and the burden of it can be lifted. I, I still hold that I think there is that third point. Um, as you said, it's empathy. In my practical experience, it's when, when one is in a difficult dialogue or situation, it is often heard in very different ways by the person speaking and, or by both parties. And so they have, both parties have very different felt experiences of what happened, right? And so I am able not just to feel empathy, but to apologize that I caused them pain, that perhaps there was a way that I could have done it better, but that in order not to do moral injury to myself, I can't say that I would have done it differently. So for me, that is a third yes. point in, in this conversation about the nature of apology. It brings to mind a domain that's interpersonal that really does fit that third category. It's an experience I had in a collaborative case I handled mm -hmm. with a couple who um, had an eight-year-old child. They were divorcing. The man had been working very hard at a job he didn't like um, to support mom, who was an artist, to stay home and raise this daughter. Mm -hmm. And she fell in love with another man who was an artist. Mm -hmm. um, and the marriage ended because of that. And they went through a long process of facilitated thera therapeutic conversation as they tried to unravel the marriage with integrity. At the end of which, the very last thing that happened in a collaborative case, often we have a meeting where people sign their documents and then we kind of congratulate people for a job well done. My client, the woman, wanted to do something ceremonial and she had brought an altar cloth and a candle and all of that stuff. And there were two lawyers and her husband sitting there. She created an, an altar and put her hands across her husband and said, I am so sorry I hurt you. I hope you can forgive me and I forgive you for all that happened in the wake of what I did. And it was like that. And the two, not a dry eye in the room. But they simply looked in one another's eyes and apologized and forgave. But she couldn't have done it differently. She wished she could have, and she couldn't have. You know, I'm gonna, I want to affirm one aspect, at least, of what Michael is saying that comes up in our work all the time, all the time. But people will ask, okay, I had a terrible parent, so to speak. Um, do I need to go to them and say, I forgive you? And, and, and our response is, it's very nuanced because you may have perceived that you had a terrible parent, but they might not share that same perception. They might see you as a ridiculous pain in the ass kid who their life increased dramatically when you left home. Um, so, no, but this is really crucial stuff. Like, you can't just take your one-sided point of view as if that's the only point of view. And some people will be, like, find it ridiculous that you go to them and say, I forgive you, because they don't believe that they did anything that requires forgiveness. And so 
part of this is to be gentle in, in each of the aspects of it. Like just because we have a perception, that perception can be honored, but it's not always true. And I, I think that's part of what you know, you're saying, but we have, we have had to caution people to be very careful, very careful, because often, and, and I think you said this also, you know, different people come out of situations with entirely different narratives about the situation. So, you know, you talk to the husband. In fact, this just happened in some experience that I was uh, asked to comment upon. Somebody said they're working with a couple and the husband was saying something that the wife was awful and the wife was saying... It's just not the way it is. Like, it's absolutely not the way it is. And then you get into the very difficult psychology of this, which is why you have to be careful. Like, if you're in relationship, let's say, with a narcissist, the perspectives are going to be very, very, very different because they don't process the world we do. You can be in relationship with somebody who has some borderline tendencies and their greatest joy is in disrupting your life <laughs> because that's the only way they know how to create equilibrium. So they might say, wow, I live with this crazy person. You know, I come home and, you know, within 15 minutes they're yelling at me, but they're never going to admit that the little digs that they do or the ways they've learned how to alienate people and the subtle throwaways that they have all designed to destabilize their partner. It's not so simple. The, the reason I'm going to come at that an apology can be useful, and, and I'm, not, I'm not making an argument that it's always from the same picture or about everything, is it, is it shows, again, the restorative aspect of it and some degree of humility both of which are really, really useful qualities in maintaining interpersonal relationships. But only when possible and appropriate, as you're saying. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't always work that way. Yeah, it's just... You know, Pauline, I just want to mention a little, in a little more depth about your work, and please correct me what I don't remember correctly, but uh, you mentioned that the lawyers, when you, you have a marital case, that the lawyers are only the tip of the iceberg. So you bring in... Um, psychotherapists to work with the kids, potentially with the couple. But the other thing I noticed that you do is you bring in an independent accountant yeah. early on yeah. to put all the money issues on the table Wonderful. so that the financial piece is with agreed upon parameters, you know, Precisely. since that tears apart so many of these things. And so you're bringing in psychotherapy support, you're bringing in you know, objective assessment of financial resources. What am I missing that you bring in? Well, I, uh, that's, that's the basic frame, yeah. but the way that, that it works on the ground mm -hmm. is that ideally we have three mental health professionals working on a collaborative team. It yeah. sounds expensive and top-heavy, but it isn't because yeah. they come back and forth as, as yeah. needed. Um, each of the spouses who's divorcing has an allied mental health professional working in a coaching mm -hmm. model, not doing therapy, but using mm -hmm. therapeutic tools and wow. skills 
to coach toward getting through this divorce process Mm -hmm. with integrity, with dignity, and with value-added understandings and capacities even. So each spouse has that coach. And the children have what we call a child specialist, which um, in some communities, um, this is distorted into a single mental health professional trying to do all these functions. Just doesn't work as well. Mm -hmm. The child specialist doesn't have any advocacy role at all, but is the voice to the children, explaining to them what a divorce is and what's happening in their lives. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. Things are going to be fine. Your parents love you. Children won't ask those questions. They won't talk about what they're so scared about because even young children can sense that their parents are at the lowest ebb and they don't want to add another bit of pain to the parents' lives. So voice to the children, but also voice from the children. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a clear channel, a pure channel of information, Mm -hmm. not designed to suggest solutions or to to suggest that you're a good parent, you're a bad parent, but simply something like, Johnny told me that I have permission to tell you that when each of you comes to the soccer games with your new love interests, and then you argue with one another, that it makes him so embarrassed that he's going to quit the team. And then that person leaves the room. And the coaches, the the divorcing couple, and sometimes the lawyers then help facilitate what parents are going to do about it. But the result of that is that neither money, in the sense of what's true, what's there, nor what the needs of the children and the perceptions of the children are. We don't have alternate facts. The universe of facts Everybody has a shared universe of facts and information. That's huge because most of the argumentation and litigation in divorce is about alternate facts. Mm -hmm. And there really is only one set of facts about those things. So that's how it works. You are listening to a TNS conversation with Fred Luskin, Pauline Tesler, and Michael Lerner. Fred, I want to come back to uh, something we talked about briefly before we started the conversation. It seems to me that, um, you know, we've talked about forgiveness as one of the deep religious values. But I also think about it, and I'm not as clear about this, in the philosophical traditions. Have you thought about or uh, considered what of the great wisdom traditions, the philosophical wisdom traditions, talk about forgiveness? You know, I, I, I had a, a very, I've had some interesting experiences talking in front of different religious groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm going to say to you that the, from what I've seen from most of the religious traditions, forgiveness is, not, is a great idea rarely practiced. Mm-hmm that there's a huge disconnect between what's written and what's practiced because most people, no matter what their religious tradition is or wisdom tradition, suffer from how hard it is to let go of being badly treated. Mm -hmm. One of the most telling experiences I had, and it's been pointed out to me provocatively that the Jewish faith and the Christian faith do not see forgiveness the same, that the Jewish faith sees it much more as a community-based thing 
and that, that it's supposed to be part of the process of keeping the tribe together. And it's a, it's a, it's a mechanism that's essential for people in a tribe to stay together. The Christian faith is much more an individual letting go of a, of a resentment or a grudge modeled upon Christ's letting go of that enormous wound. But I've had experiences just to keep like the humility and the difficulty of this. Um, I was once invited to speak at a, a temple. I'm Jewish and I grew up in New York. And I grew up in Long Island and I was, I was invited to speak at a temple maybe 10 minutes from where I grew up. So I, I thought, this is cool, you know, go back home and I'll, you know, whatever. So I'm invited into a big room with maybe 200 people in the auditorium. I don't know, I don't know what it is, but I start to talk about forgiveness. And somebody gets up about five, seven minutes into my talk and, and without doing so with vulgarity, he, he blames me for blaspheming um, Jews because of what they suffered in the Holocaust. You're talking about the deepest horrors, about how can you come into this place and talk about forgiveness when the Holocaust occurred and Jews are still persecuted all over the world. This is basically what he was saying. And, and he said so with great fervor and, you know, like, agita. And, and I, I said to him, well, you know, I, a couple of things I said. One, I'm Jewish, so it's not you versus me, it's, it's us, and I'm here to present an alternative to what you just presented, is keeping this going. And then he, this is what was so interesting. He starts to fight with me, and he says, you know, I'm, I, I was the past rabbi here. And I just don't, I just don't buy this. And um, I had to tell him, I mean, talk about like sometimes you have to say something that you could apologize for after. <laughs> I told him he's going to have to sit down because the current rabbi invited me. <laughs> but not, not, to, not to think that this is limited just to Jews, I was invited to speak. This is how challenging forgiveness is. And to be a forgiveness teacher, I've long expected hostility and contempt to come my way because I'm asking people to give up their stuff. So I was once speaking at a Presbyterian retreat center in Lake Tahoe. And... Um, what, it was wonderful. It's gorgeous. It was right on the lake. And the deal was if I'd come and talk about forgiveness for like 45 minutes a day, my family and I could spend a week in Lake Tahoe. So it's great, you know? Okay. So the first day, I, I get up there. And this is, this is a little more peculiar for me than being in a temple. I'm in this Presbyterian retreat where they have like big figures of Jesus hanging there on the cross, which is fine. I'm in a church, you know, it's like, but there's like six of them around the room. So I walk in and I think, okay, I'm clearly in a Christian place here, you know, <laughs> like, 
nobody's confused about. <laughs> I mean, this is the way my mind works. So, but I don't. I see forgiveness as universal, and and based on, again, thousands of year old traditions. So I get up there and I start to talk. And within about the same period of time, <laughs> maybe five or ten minutes, three women come out of their seats and start, like, not yelling at me, just like the rabbi wasn't personally hostile, he was just hostile to forgiveness. These three women jump up and say, if you had had my ex-husband, <laughs> you would not be talking about forgiveness. That, by the way, is the most prevalent objective, objection to forgiveness is my ex-husband. That and Adolf Hitler are the two that people bring to me. Okay, so wait. So these three women jump up and start telling me how bad their ex was, and if I had lived with them, I wouldn't be bringing this up at all. I don't know what to say. I mean, I, I, can, I can truthfully admit that the part of me that is a snarky Jewish New Yorker was thinking, these husbands are really lucky. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually what I was thinking. <laughs> but what I responded was this, because again, it's, it's my way of seeing this is I said, you know, I'm sure you had a terrible time in your marriages. I have no doubt about that. I said, but look where we are. I said, there's Jesus hanging everywhere. And wait, I said, I'm Jewish. He's your boy. If you don't like what I'm saying, at least take his program in his house. What did they say? They sunk, yeah, they got down. <laughs> And they never bothered me again. <laughs> but what, what, I'm, what I'm getting at is this universal difficulty. I mean, I'm, I'm a storyteller. Again, I couldn't do this work, honest to God, if I didn't have some deflection with humor and stories because the suffering is endless. And people have gone through hideous things. You worked in Sierra Leone, you worked in yeah, Ireland, and, Northern and, Ireland. And, and the worst, yeah. the worst, can I just say one more yeah, thing yeah. about that? The, the difficulty of this is so profound, so profound, including in my own heart, that I, just like everybody I know, demonizes other people rather than doing their own healing work. And we can go to our grave talking about how bad our mother-in-law was or how bad this friend was. I did it this morning. I was even, I was slapped on, not, not physically slapped, but my partner told me that, Fred, you were just too hard on me about she failed to do something. And I gave her grief for longer than was necessary, and she called me on it. And she was right. You know, like this, this human process of not owning our woundedness is everywhere and omnipresent. And again, like you described, gratitude is essential because that's the easiest way of balancing somebody's heart so they want to be more forgiving. 
And I'm going to say the second most essential thing is be able to grieve your wounds. Mm -hmm. the, the three things that you picked up are the three things that we talk most about. Gratitude, grieving, and forgiveness. They're, they're together. But if you can't see the good in your life and you can't grieve your own pain, you can't forgive. But the hardest thing that I ever personally listened to, I mean, I've listened to so much, but the most, like, just jaw-dropping was um, we did a, a small forgiveness group, I don't know, 20 people, four or five years after the attacks at the World Trade Center. Mm -hmm. And we did it for 20 or so 30 people, I think, who had families, family members killed in the planes that flew into those buildings. Mm -hmm. And so um, I'm standing there, I'm teaching, and you know the, the people are talking about what was the worst part of it. And I'm, I'm just going to say that when you're dealing with absolute horror that you can't even countenance, Many people, even a couple of years after it, can't face it even. Like they can't. So four years after, I think this is four or five, but probably four years after, a number of the people were telling me that the worst part of it was not that these people flew something into a building that killed people, but that the city of New York had given up sifting the remains because they were no longer finding body parts large enough to identify. Mm -hmm. And they were furious at the city of New York. Now, that's a displacement. They're not furious at the city of New York. They're but one, one woman got up and she talked about what the experience was to be on her phone, on the phone with her son as the plane hit the building. He was in the building? Yeah, he yeah. was in the World Trade Center. Mm -hmm. And and she sounded a bit like an intrusive mother because you could, you know, you could just tell she called her son every morning, like, how you doing? <laughs> I think the son was like 28, you know, fine, mom, now go. But this morning, they're on the phone and he's giving her the obligatory fine mom. But he says to his mother in the midst of the conversation, you know, mom, there's a plane out there that just doesn't look right. Mm -hmm. And they go on to talk for another few seconds because it all happened really fast. And then he says, you know, mom, remember that plane I told you about? Well, it seems to be turning towards Manhattan. I don't understand this. And then five seconds later, it's, wait, that plane is coming towards Manhattan. And then, you know, it looks like the plane's coming towards the building. And then the phone goes dead. Hey. Mm -hmm. And she told this story like four years after that happened. And what do you say? I mean, you know what I mean? Like philosophically, existentially, what do you say? Towards people who thought they were in some level honoring their God by killing people by flying, deliberately flying planes into buildings. Now, how do you, like, what do you, what do you say? You know, like, 
Yeah, I would like to open it up a little bit now. I'd like to ask you to keep say your name, please, and keep keep the comments brief, and we'll maybe collect a few and then uh, ask Fred and Pauline to reflect on this. Okay. Any comments, questions? Yeah. I have a couple of comments. I'll make them brief. My name is Leslie Cruz. I live here in Balinas. And I saw you 20 years ago. What was that? I saw you 20 years ago. I really? In Portola Valley. And I'm remembering it's 20 years, but it was probably 20, maybe 18, because I know your book was out. I st I would have, the first public talk I would have given, given was in probably 1999 or 2000 in Portola Valley. Oh, there you go. <laughs> wow. At the, ch at the church? At the church, I think. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Yeah. It's really amazing. I, the Presbyterian church? You know, now you're really pushing. I did have children I'm just time, saying. So I'm okay, go ahead. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, I think you answered the question I had, maybe. Um, but I had two comments. One is that when we talk about relationships, when you have a child and you have two people who are like this and they start to move apart, it's so often spoken about as the woman moves away. But what is not talked about is how much the father falls in love with the child, too. And I think that is dropped out of conversation so often. Hmm. Um, and I think it's really important. And my husband, after our first child, you know, we realized this was happening. And then he kind of thought, but I'm crazy about him, too. You know, and so it was, I think that needs to be kind of reintroduced a bit more. Thank you. And the other thing um, that comes to mind in um, saying I'm sorry um, is uh, if you love a person, then each time when you think you're right, you're in the position of going, is the issue or the relationship more important? And if you choose the relationship, it's really easy. <laughs> mm -hmm. But if you choose the issue, the struggle gets harder. Because mm -hmm. you can't divorce yourself from that. You know, if you love the person, you'll still work towards that. Mm -hmm. But if you don't, it's so easy yeah. to go the other way. Thank you for that. I and I just have a quick question. Yeah. Can, I, can, can I respond to that, though? Yeah. I, I don't think the dialectic is between the issue and the relationship. I think the dialectic is between being right about the issue and the relationship. Yeah. You can certainly honor a continued discussion about an issue. The problem is when you insist you're right, then you sacrifice the relationship. But I think you were putting that as a dialectic where you either sacrifice the issue or sacrifice the relationship. I don't know that that's always true. Sometimes no, it, it is. I, that's why I said if you, if yeah. you believe in a person. But that's just my, my strong, pushback. You can move that way. Yeah. What was the question? The question is, with all you know about forgiveness, does it um, prevent you from getting, from not, um, how do I, I, I wrote this down because <laughs> it, it can't be, um, well, knowing what you know about forgiveness, um, do you need to forgive or do you prevent it? Do you prevent getting into situations where uh, you get wrapped up and uh, I'm going down the dark path? I mean, you know a lot about the situation. It's just what we talked about earlier. What's that? It's sort of what we talked about earlier, which is can you avoid feeling those feelings of hurt and anger and vengefulness 
through developing this skill, yeah. or do you feel them, Boy. but then you have a skill to deal with them? Mm, yeah. Is that Thank what you're you. asking? Thank you so much. Yeah, I was trying to figure out what your exact <laughs> question was. Um, I mean, I'm going to say because human beings are so complex that the answer is yes to all of them. Yes. That um, probably the most common experience is that you feel hurt and offended and wounded. You go through a grieving process and then you're ready to make peace. That's the most common and probably with severe offenses the healthiest. That in my understanding of this, some of those painful feelings are to keep us aware of other people's suffering. So if, you know, so that, that's part of the empathy process. It's, I know what it feels like to be lied to. I know what it feels like to trust people and have it not be out. I suffered. I'm, I'm not sure that it's always best not to suffer. So, but the thing is, and this is where the, those stages of grief are so important, is my understanding of grief is it's the brain and personality's way of trying to reach equilibrium again when what we thought was true or stable gets disrupted. So if you come home and your partner is, you know, cheating on you, then your foundation has been disrupted and you have to find equilibrium again, but it's a new equilibrium. Denial keeps the immensity of the change from overwhelming you. Depression keeps muted the reactivity. Anger is one of the responses, an experimental response to see if I'm angry, will that make any difference? Like these are all, these are all attempts for equilibrium. Mm -hmm. Negotiation, bargaining is the same thing. Is there a God that I can negotiate with? Is there a, a way of being inside of myself that I can access? You know, okay, take my neighbor, not me. You know what I mean? Like that kind of <laughs> stuff. You try all that out. And then you're left with the fact that you still have the wound, the loss, the change. You better make peace with it. But in an affirmative sense, part of peacemaking is to forgive. That's my answer to you. Okay? Yeah. Other questions and comments? Yes? I don't know quite how to phrase this, but... I have a sense that there is a role that self-forgiveness plays in one's ability to forgive others. I'm wondering if you could speak to that. Now that's a beautiful comment. What, what the comment, you well, I mean, you know, Fred is asking me to, to comment on that. Um, you know, the Dalai Lama has a, right. a lovely line. He yeah, says, you I can search the whole universe over and you will never find somebody more worthy of your prayers than yourself. Mm -hmm. And um, I deeply believe that. I mean, one of the things, I, 
you know, we've, we've talked about grief, uh, forgiveness, and um, what was the third? Gratitude. Gratitude. And gratitude. But, you know, there's a whole set of these things. Um, you know, wisdom we talked about, mm-hmm. kindness, you know. Mm-hmm. But, my God, the power of prayer is just awesome. And whether or not you believe in intercessionary prayer, which I do, I think that it's real, but there's no question that prayer can have an impact on the person who's praying. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really true. Um, so I think that question of self-forgiveness is, is a very profound one. And I think it's hard to forgive other people if you don't forgive yourself. You know, I mean, in fact, the, the meta-meditation that they use in Insight Meditation Society a lot, you know, they often... Um, start with forgiving a distant person and forgiving somebody closer. And very often the last stage is to forgive yourself, which for some people is really hard. I I do need to say something just because it fascinates me. Uh, I was talking to Fred and Pauline about the fact that for the last three years or so, out of a 30-year study of archetypal psychologies, I've been studying Enneagram, which is a specific Mm -hmm. kind of archetypal psychology. And When I listen to a conversation like this where we try to generalize about people's responses, I think to myself, you know what? By Enneagram theory, there are 27 different sub-personalities. There are three, nine main ones. There are actually three main ones, nine total, and then three subtypes of each. And so there are 27 different ways of processing the world, which is not only Enneagram, it's also tracks very closely with a Kabbalistic tree of life, the deadly sins of Catholicism, uh, you know, the Dante's circles of hell, and the lands Ulysses visits on his way home from Troy, you know, in the same order. So from my, and it also tracks very closely with a diagnostic psychiatric manual. So my point of view is that there are nine core ways that have been stable in Western civilization for three or four or 5,000 years mm-hmm. that people process. Mm-hmm. So here we all are trying to talk about how people respond to things. And guess what? It's really hard to generalize, you know? Yeah. I mean, whether you use Enneagram or any other archetypal psychology or any other depth psychology that gives you any subtlety at all, it's really hard to generalize about how humans respond. So the issue of forgiveness would be, uh, or any of these other issues, would be um, explored in nine different ways, or 27 different ways, by these different characterological types. You know, So that's a reflection. You had a question. I just wanted to ask about when, uh, like, sort of like interpersonal conflict and you know, getting resolution and maybe eventually getting, you know, uh, apology um, and then forgiveness. But sometimes it can be kind of a modest, like, offense. Um, And then, you know, like, not what some of the things we've been talking about. And and so the the party um, that felt offended says something. And then the other party will deny that it is happened or that that well that's on you like that's you know mm-hmm. I, I didn't mean it that's you know you're that's that's you projecting something that's you that's all on you and so the whole thing is deflected away and I just like what you know and you're trying to work to resolve it and you feel like that it, that pushback how do you then you know you're shut down but you still want to 
have resolution, you want to forgive, you realize this person doesn't know that they're causing offense, that doesn't, you know, it's not that they don't care, but they somehow deflect it all. Mm -hmm. Good question. You know, I, I want to... What I, what I would like to do is th there's, there's no real way to um, say really anything about forgiveness without altering um, for each of you to hear it from a little different consciousness than you tend to listen to things, including me. But you know how like there's, there's wisdom and spiritual traditions that talk about you know, the non-dual way of being mm -hmm. and things where it's not just opposites, but mm -hmm. there's one thing. Forgiveness in its own small way has that as a part of it, that you have the offender or whatever it is that's wrong, and you have the offended. And both have a kind of one point of view. They're sitting with one point on the spectrum. If you go up a little higher, you have a situation. And if you go up and higher like that, you just have normal human experience. <laughs> like nothing's happening. It's just, it's just human beings doing things that offend and don't offend. And, and so you want to ask yourself, where do you want your consciousness to be? Like, do you just want it mired in the reciprocal, I'm right, you're wrong, I'm not right, I'm not wrong, which is fine. It's a very useful consciousness. But again, a little higher up is, oh, here's two people in conflict, which changes it. And then even higher than that is just, this is what human beings do forever on planet Earth. <laughs> they get together, they disagree, they draw apart, they quarrel, they come back, they argue. At some level, nothing is happening but movement of energy. So the, the problem that forgiveness answers to some degree is all of us who are stuck only in that level of offender and offended. Forgiveness by itself up-levels that a little bit, so that's just not how the way you see it. You don't just see yourself or your tribe or your gender, whatever it is, as an offended category, and the other category is the offender. It's us doing what we do to each other. But let me, let, me, let me just do one meditation practice because it's, a very, it's just a simple way to like, express this in, in the tiniest way. Please don't take this for a deep, like, you know, anything. But what I'd like you to do is close your eyes for a moment and just, this is, this is just such a simple reminder at some level of the whole topic So what I'd like you to do all is please close your eyes and, and just take a couple of breaths. This is not a deep, long meditation practice, but just take a couple of breaths. And if you want to quiet your nervous system, then you have to breathe into and out of your belly. 
If you don't expand your lower abdomen, then you will stay adrenalized in whatever we do. And what you want to do is give your mind a moment to operate without adrenaline, without that locked into, I'm separate. So you want to take maybe two or three breaths into and out of your belly, and you really want to see if you can breathe where your belly expands on the inhale. This is yoga breathing. It's nothing unique. But your belly expands on the inhale and contracts on the exhale. And then what I'd like you to do is bring an image to your mind of someone you adore. And then feel the affection that you have for this person in your heart. And relax into that feeling. And then just let that go and allow your eyes to open. That's the part of us that can forgive. It's not in just, are we right? Are we wrong? Were we hurt? What's the story? It's a part of us that's at peace. The part of us that's at peace forgives naturally as an expression of itself. What's so interesting is all the things that we do to keep us from that part of ourselves. All the stories we tell, all the ways that we manipulate reality so that we stay at the center of it. These are the ways that we keep ourselves from whatever that non-dual wisdom is. And if somebody has harmed us or somebody has harmed our tribe, we practice things day after day to close this from our own awareness. That's what the practice is. Forgiveness is what happens when you touch that part of yourself. You're just, you're free. I hope that, that, that's, that can't be just talked about. Before I finish, I want to read you the best 
poem, the, actually the best thing that I've ever read about forgiveness. And it's, it's so much better than my book. I mean, it, <laughs> I'm just laughing because it's two paragraphs. And I, it's the best thing that I've ever read about forgiveness. And it's a poem by Mary Oliver called The Settlement. And it's, look, it's spring. And last year's loose dust has turned into this soft willingness. The windflowers have come up trembling. Slowly the brackens are uplifting their curvaceous and pale bodies. The thrushes have come home, none less than filled with mystery, sorrow, happiness, music, ambition. And I am walking out into all of this with nowhere to go and no task undertaken but to turn the pages of this beautiful world over and over in the world of my mind. Therefore, dark past, I'm about to do it. I'm about to forgive you for everything. <laughs> That's what it is. It's like you, you recognize you're in this gorgeous world for a short period of time and you allow the majesty of it to partly to heal yourself, you know? It's like we get this opportunity for a little while and we don't want to miss it. It's like it's not that complicated, you know? It's like we don't want to miss it. I'm going to say one more thing and then I've probably said enough, but like I've learned so much about this over 20 years and literally going into hell to do this stuff is most of you think that unforgiveness, me too, is simply a kind of question as to whether the offender, and, and this could be whether you're a Jew dealing with the Holocaust or a black dealing with slavery. I mean, it, it, it's, I'm not, it's, it's, it's big and little. But what we fail to recognize what we're actually doing, even though we think it's just about our neighbor or our brother or the blacks with the whites and the Jews with anybody. I mean, I'm just saying what we're actually doing, and this is why gratitude is so essential, is we're actually doing an accounting of our whole life whenever we don't forgive. And what we're saying is the beauty and blessings that have come to us are not sufficient. Mm. Don't fool yourselves. I mean, you can because I still do, but I'm just saying that recognize what you're doing. You're doing an accounting and you're saying all that's come to me is not sufficient for me to be gracious. Yeah. That's what you're saying. It's defensible. It's understandable, it's deeply human, but that's what we're doing. We're saying that all the love, all the kindness, all the beauty, all the generosity, all the abundance was not enough for me to have an open heart right now. That's what unforgiveness is. And so the, the, the key Peace, and again, I'm just sharing with you because we've taught this so many times, is gratitude is essential because you have to pay attention to what you have 
before you can actually make any kind of articulate decision as to whether what you don't have was that bad. Otherwise, you're just, you're just in your head, and it doesn't mean that much. So gratitude is so essential, and again, and being willing to grieve and feel the pain, that's 75% of the process. Now, forgiveness is like the icing on it, but most of us are not grateful at all. So we can, you know, we can take a modest offense and hold a grudge when we're eating and, you know, we have a roof over our head and all that stuff. But we're not willing to feel the pain of being human. We resist it. We're not willing to suffer. It's part of the requirements for being here. And we're not willing to pay that. So if we're willing to do those two things, it's not that hard to nudge towards forgiveness. But without being willing to do those two things, it's almost impossible. Anyway, enough speechifying from me. <laughs> Thank you. Pauline, any last, last yeah, thoughts? Was, I couldn't possibly say anything after that. <laughs> wow. Sorry. Well, Fred Luskin and Pauline Tesler, thank you for being with us at the New School. Thank you. What's that? That was really something. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Fred Luskin, Pauline Tesler, and Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.